So we'll be mainly in uh, Colossians 1 this morning, but before we get there, I thought it would be good to start with this passage in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. Now, this is a passage that I feel like most are already familiar with. This is the Great Commission. These are Jesus' last words to his disciples before his ascension. And this is his final charge to them. With that, this should be something that we marvel at. Our Lord's final words to those that he spent three years ministering to, three years suffering with, three years caring for and walking with, three years of doing life with them, and he leaves them with this. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. It says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, again, this is, this is not the main passage that we're focusing on, but I thought this was a great foundation to start with. Now, I'm just going to quickly run through this passage and show like, why this matters to us. Really, we're just going to look at the verbs in this passage. So the verbs that we see here are Jesus told them to go. He told them to make disciples. He told them to baptize them and to teach them, to obey all that I've commanded. Now, I'll be the first to admit that sentence structure and grammar is not my strong suit. I'm very weak at that. But with that, I would miss key insights like we're going to see here. When you look at the sentence structure of this, the verbs help display the focus of the Great Commission. So there's only one commanding verb in this passage, which is make disciples, as it's in the imperative form. And then the other three come alongside that to show how to make disciples. So what this is showing is that the focus of the Great Commission, the focus of Jesus' last charge to his followers is to make disciples. Again, the other three verbs in this passage can, you, can be used to help describe the actual process of what that looks like. So like we need to go. We need to find someone to share this good gospel news with and process that with. Baptizing, like Jason just said, baptizing is when a new believer is um, identifying with the Lord Jesus Christ and identifying with the fellowship of the church. And then third, teaching. This involves equipping people to live, to walk, to act, to think like Jesus. Just making converts is not the command. We must make disciples. This is the great commission for every church, for every believer. All that we do in life should be seen through this lens of how does this help make disciples. And we, we all have our unique role to play in this process too because of the spiritual gifts we have received through the Holy Spirit. And this command is not just for the responsibility of the leaders in the church either. Scripture says that church leadership is called to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. And that pairs with the ability of every believer to make disciples. So Jesus says, therefore, go and make disciples. The, the command is clear to us, yet our understanding of how to live out that command is often kind of foggy. Before we fully jump to Colossians, I, I just wanted to outline what a disciple is and what discipleship is so that we all have the same understanding before moving on. 
This understanding, I think, will help us appreciate our passage in Colossians at a deeper level. And my hope is that this will also encourage us to follow Christ's example in striving to make disciples of all nations. So for starters, like what is a disciple? A disciple is simply someone who follows Jesus by faith. Someone who, who strives to learn from Jesus and through the Holy Spirit be more like him. Some in today's culture, they try to make a distinction between a disciple and a normal believer, as if there's like different tiers of what it looks like to follow Jesus. But scripture makes no such distinction in that. You're either following Jesus or you're not. A disciple is the same thing as a Christian, one who has turned from their sins, denied themselves, as Luke 9.23 says, and follows Christ as Lord of their life. And, and following Jesus means helping others follow him too. This is exactly what Jesus modeled in his ministry. When Christ called his first disciples in Matthew 4.19, he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus is showing that following him entails bringing others with you. Something that my friends in Arkansas say is, since we've been welcomed in to the family of God, we've also joined the family business of making disciples. This is what we've been designed to do, which is incredible. But then what does this look like? What does discipleship look like? Mark Dever, uh, he's a prominent Nine Marks pastor, um, he describes discipleship as doing spiritual good to one another. And it really is just simply helping others follow Jesus. Which, for starters, this should flow directly from our own personal relationship with Jesus. And in discipleship, we're called to evangelize to non-Christians, and we're called to help other believers around us grow. So first, we're called to evangelize. This is telling others who don't follow Christ what it means to follow Jesus. We do this by proclaiming and portraying the gospel in our lives, in our neighborhoods, and to the nations. We must never forget that God has placed us in these families. He's placed us in our workplaces. He's placed us in the circle of friends that we're around so that those who are destined to hell can hear about the gospel of grace. We must help people learn how to begin to follow Jesus. We're called to evangelize. And then second, we're called to help other believers grow to be more like Christ. Believers are called to build each other up, to imitate others who are following Christ. And we're also called to teach faithful men so they can in turn teach others also. All of this takes intentionality on our side. And it can, it can also look differently. It can be with someone older, modeling like a mentor relationship. But it can also look like someone the same age as you, or someone younger than you, that you're just coming alongside, and you guys are both mutually helping each other grow in Christ-likeness. Both are incredible ways to step into discipleship. Some common thoughts of opposition that either I've had or I, I hear frequently our thoughts like, whoa, 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 like, how, how can I do this, though? I'm not qualified. I've, I haven't been trained in this. Like, I don't, I don't know enough. Or maybe, like, I'm, I'm too young. But Scripture is clear that if you are truly following Christ, all of us are qualified 
but it's not because of us. We're qualified because we have the Spirit of God inside of us, and we have God's Word to guide us. It's not up to us. Every believer in Christ is qualified and called to step into discipleship. Discipleship can take place anywhere, but the most natural place for it to happen is here in the local church body. The passage we're looking at today, Paul speaks to the local church at Colossae, explaining to them what his ministry looks like. So please open your Bibles to Colossians 1. We'll be specifically looking at verses 28 and 29. I think Pat <clears throat> always does a great job at emphasizing that before you dive into the book of a Bible, um, you need to look at the con whoa, context of that book. This is important to understand like what's happening and why things are being talked about. So a little background for Colossians. This book is written by the Apostle Paul while he was in prison in Rome for announcing the risen Jesus as Lord. Paul is addressing a group of people that actually he's never met before. The church at Colossae was established by a co-worker of Paul named Epaphras, and Epaphras is from that city. Epaphras had re recently visited Paul in prison, and he updated him on how the church is doing, and he told Paul about some cultural pressures that the church is um, going through, and it's tempting that church to turn away from Jesus. So Paul writes this letter to them to encourage the Colossians to address those issues and also to challenge the church to a greater devotion to Jesus. So a little breakdown of verses 1 to 27, because we're not going to hit on that too hard today. Uh, Paul begins the chapter by expressing thanksgiving and prayer. He goes into explaining the superiority of Christ the Messiah, and then he talks about his own ministry to the church. And that last part, that's what we're going to be looking at today. So as we're in Colossians 1, 28 and 29, I believe these, just these two verses help do a great job at summarizing what discipleship is. So I think there's five key points that I want to emphasize as we go. These points are the heart of discipleship, the means of discipleship, the goal of discipleship, the cost of discipleship, and then the power of discipleship. So Colossians 1, 28 and 29, I'm just going to read the passage for today. It says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So these first three words of this verse show what the heart of discipleship is. It says, Him we proclaim. Paul is describing his ministry, and, and he's showing that all of our efforts should come from a desire to proclaim Christ. Him we proclaim. This should be the foundation of our entire lives. The author of life, the creator of everything we know. Earlier in this chapter, in verses 16 and 17 in Colossians, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones, powers, rulers, or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Him 
we proclaim. Jesus is loved by God the Father. In Scripture, it says a voice booms from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus is the new Adam. Jesus did what no one else in history has ever done or will ever do. He fully resisted temptation. He didn't give in one time to sin. He's the new Adam. Jesus is the light of the world. What Isaiah has promised has come true. It says the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. Him we proclaim. Jesus is the Savior King. John the Baptist declared, The King is coming, and He's coming to save all who repent and believe in Him. Jesus is that Savior King, and He's the hope for all nations. This is Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah, the one promised to come in the kingly line of David and Abraham. He's fully human, fully divine, God in the flesh, the only one deserving of our worship, and the one who we are to proclaim. Now, if we take a step back and reflect on our own life, if we're being honest, we all have done nothing to deserve to be in the family of God. And yet God has demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Our lives have been eternally changed because of what God has done for us. We've done nothing, but our heavenly Father has done it all. Christ is worthy. Christ is enough. And Christ is in control. Him. Him we proclaim. This is the good news. This is the news that we are to proclaim to the lost and to the saved. Discipleship should be solely focused on making more of Christ and proclaiming his name. John 3.30 says, he must become greater and I must become less. Discipleship should be outwardly focused with the heart of proclaiming more of Jesus. We, we, we don't invest in someone with, for the sake of just that individual alone, but with the mindset that they will go on and make more of Christ in the world. Everything we do should fall into this. However, we, we need to be watchful because if we take our eyes off of Jesus, we can fall into the temptation of making more of ourselves. And that can be really easy to do. We need to examine our own motives behind our actions to ensure that our heart is in a healthy place. We don't want people to point to us but rather we want people to point to him, point to Christ. As we continue on in Colossians 1, 28 and 29, these next words, this next part of the verse show the means of discipleship. It says, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. This essentially shows like the basics to follow in discipleship, to teach, to warn and like teaching is a given. That's what we all think of. But this shows that there's more than that. We also need to warn others. 2 Timothy 2.2 2 says, And what you have heard 
from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So what Paul is telling Timothy here is to teach other faithful men around him what he has learned so that others will grow in Christ-likeness and so that the gospel will be preserved for generations to come. When, when I think of this verse, I think of a guy named Daniel who first shared the gospel with me. How he'd grab lunch and he'd just talk to me about different parables in the Bible. He'd ask me what I think about them and he'd challenge me. And this was before I even was a believer. And then after that, I think of a guy named Jake who started teaching me. Jake showed me what discipleship looks like, what it looks like to disciple someone, to get consistent time with them, to go through content, and also like let them see my imperfect life. I think of Jesse and Dylan, who I got to come alongside with, and we'd like brainstorm together specific like discipleship scenarios that we're all in. And we'd challenge each other and encourage one another. I think of Coleman and Dane, who I got the chance to lead. And I also think of how much they specifically helped sharpen me along the way. I also think of many other guys that, I, honestly, I don't even know their names, that come after Coleman and Dane. But one thing I know is that one day, we will all be standing before the throne of God. We'll be able to look around. We'll be able to see people from every tongue, every tribe, every nation. And we'll be amazed by how God worked through our ordinary lives for his purpose. We're called to be faithful in this. And we teach others with eternity in mind. And also, teaching doesn't have to be in the manner uh, like we think of like in a classroom either. Most of what I've learned from others in my faith has happened at either coffee shops or like Popeye's chicken. Like so much discipleship for me happened at Popeye's. We'd just, we'd meet there, we'd talk about scripture, we'd talk about what we're learning, we'd be vulnerable with each other, and we'd just encourage one another. With guys that are older than me, guys that are younger than me, or or the same age, like it, it didn't matter. Galatians 6.6 6 says, let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. What Paul is saying here is that when you learn from the word, share it even with the one who teaches you. Like they can learn from you also. There's mutual growth that happens in discipleship, no matter if you're the teacher or if you're both mutually teaching one another. We're called to teach others and to warn others. And when we look at the warning, like too often the most ignored warnings are those from God. The first warning given by God was in Genesis during creation. And man ignored that warning and it came with a great, great cost. God's warnings are for our benefit, to help us, to guide us. They're also there to like get our attention Many times in our lives, we need our brothers and sisters to come around us and warn us so that we don't fall into sin. We need to teach and help others go the right way, but then we also need to warn them when they're going the wrong way or when they're about to go the wrong way. It is our duty out of love to not be silent when our brothers and sisters are living in opposition to Scripture. Jesus warned against sin. 
He warned against false prophets, hypocrisy. He warned against being materialistic, along with many other things. Personally, I've had close friends come to me to bring warnings. While they noticed me spending, honestly, more time worrying about sports than I was worried about the Lord. They saw me start to idolize these sports teams, and they just faithfully started asking me about it. They brought scripture to it, and they helped me realize where my heart truly was. And to be honest, where my heart truly was in those moments was I was very discontent in the Lord, and that's why I was like idolizing these sports teams. I thank the Lord that I had friends follow what Paul says here and how to warn and teach someone. Paul is telling us, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. With all wisdom. As we disciple others, we must continually seek God's wisdom. We must recognize that we can't do it on our own and that we need the Lord's guidance. We need to be walking by what the Word says God has given us words breathed out by him, as we see in 2 Timothy 3.16. These words are useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. We must never stray away from teaching or warning apart from what the word of God instructs us. And with this, like we need to be spending consistent time in in the word and in prayer so that we can teach and warn others. A temptation that we find here with teaching and warning that we need to be aware of is we can come into the temptation of people-pleasing or maybe being too harsh. And it kind of depends on like personalities, you know, like certain personalities tend to dodge conflict. So they have a temptation um, to not warn others out of fear. They put off these hard conversations out of a desire to please people. But what they really end up doing is hurting them hurting the other person by not warning them. And then other personalities, they tend to like power and control. I have many friends like this. And they be more prone to be too harsh in those situations, be too harsh in trying to correct someone. Scripture says that this needs to be done in a spirit of gentleness and out of love, as Galatians 6.1 says. The third point that we're going to be looking at today um, is the goal of discipleship. So as we continue on in Colossians, it says, the goal of discipleship is that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The book of Colossians emphasizes that Christ's redeeming work saves his people. And it also teaches us that through his redeeming work, believers grow in maturity. The goal of discipleship is not only to make converts that make other converts, but it's for all believers to become more and more like Jesus. Throughout Scripture, discipleship is compared to parenting, as we see in like 1 Thessalonians 2, where it talks about like, like a good mother seeking to nurture and love those you disciple. Like we also need to be like a good father seeking to meet their needs and encourage them to live lives worthy of their calling. Christian parents should have the longing for their kids to know and love Jesus. And like disciples, we should feel the same way with those who we're able to be with. In this same passage, it says, Like a good mother, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, 
but our lives as well. Christians grow in maturity when they're preaching the gospel to one another regularly and when they're sharpening each other through daily living, sharing your life with one another, which also means like sharing the messy parts of your life and allowing others to see how you handle them and learn from that. A good parent shares their life with the one that they're wanting to lead. They know that if they tell their child, like, hey, you need to eat your veggies, then their child's going to look right back at them and even see if their parent is eating their vegetables, you know? And in the same way, like, if, if we're encouraging someone to prioritize time in prayer, prioritize time in the Word, we also need to be doing that. This is an aspect of discipleship that personally I just really love is how much like you personally grow while you're just trying to help someone else grow. It's beautiful. We all know the saying that like one learns best when they need to teach it to someone else. And that's true here too. As we strive to do spiritual good to one another, the Lord will continue to work in us, to mold us, to grow us, to humble us, to be more like him. And as you're parenting or discipling someone, you don't need to coddle them. Good parents don't hand-feed their kids forever, but they train them to feed and take care of themselves. They have the end goal of launching out their kids in mind, even if that's hard to think about right now for younger parents. But we must be thinking through the same lens. A section in Ephesians 4 talks about the body growing in maturity so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine and deceitful scheme. We want ourselves and others to be able to stand firm when waves and hard trials may come, standing firm in our faith and trusting the word of God. However, this is a, this is a change that happens over time. We can't expect immediate growth from ourselves or others. This happens day by day. A passage in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4.16, it says, Therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Now, I, I know that I'm not that old, but as I become older, I become more and more aware of truly how my body is like wasting away. Like I can play basketball one Sunday, and then I'm facing the repercussions of that for like weeks down the road. Even if someone just simply like steps on my toe. That happened this past Sunday and like I, I still kind of feel it now. Like this wouldn't have happened when I was younger. But also as I age, my eyes continue to become wider and wider to God's grace and how he works in the hearts and the lives of those around me. It often comes at times when I'm like caught off guard by seeing how one of my close friends is responding to a hard situation, and they're praising God through that hard situation. And I'm just thinking like, man, where is this coming from? But I realize in those moments that the Lord has been working in their lives, day by day, for a while now. And I can see how their faith is stronger now than it was years ago. And that's only from God working in their life and allowing others to come alongside them and sharpen them. True discipleship involves investing in believers, walking through life with them, and shepherding them to Christian maturity. 
here we have to be cautious of the temptation to enjoy fulfillment and being needed. Don't let those that you disciple be too dependent on you. Essentially, like, don't be Jesus to them. But in everything, point them to Jesus. It isn't you that people need. It's Christ. But in the early stages of their faith, like, they'll need you more for guidance, and that's okay. But as they grow, as they mature, they should become less and less dependent on you. As we continue on in Colossians, stepping into verse 29, this verse shows us the cost of discipleship. Paul describes the cost of discipleship by saying, for this I toil and struggle. Discipleship is purposeful and fun, and it's so rewarding, but it also requires a lot of energy. It requires a lot of time, intentionality, and hard work, and effort. It costs a lot of you. Paul uses toil and struggle to describe this part of his ministry. Toil in the Greek, it, it translates to, like, to grow weary, tired, exhausted, or to labor with wearisome effort. And then struggle is often used to describe strenuous exertion that normally goes into describing like training for things like Olympics or a fight. Scripture doesn't try to paint the cost of discipleship in this like appealing manner to like persuade you. It paints a clear picture of what to expect. The Apostle Paul fought and labored to the point of exhaustion to present believers mature in Christ. It cost him greatly, and it should also cost us greatly. Christ, when he was describing what it looked like to follow him, he didn't hold back explaining the cost of that. And we see that in Luke 9, 23 and 24. In that passage, it says, Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. So again, this is where context is important because it really paints this in a completely different manner. In context, at the time of Jesus, taking up your cross was a literal, real concept that people could see around them. When you were sentenced to be crucified, you would literally take up your cross and you would be led the place that, you, that they would eventually crucify you at. And from the moment that you lifted up that big piece of wood on your back and had to walk through the city streets, your life was forfeit. You had no rights from that moment on. So as you were led on, on the way to, your, to the place of execution, the people in the city, they could do whatever they wanted to you. They could hit you, they could throw rocks, they could spit on you, hurl insults. So as you can imagine, someone that was a hated criminal and they were taking up their cross, imagine all the things that would happen to them. I actually read that one historian noted that some, crimin some criminals were actually relieved to arrive at the place of crucifixion because of how badly they were treated along the way. And by the way, this is what Christ endured for us on our behalf. Now, of all the images that Jesus could have plucked out of the air 
He says, hey, discipleship, discipleship's going to look like you taking up your cross. Now, he's not saying that you just become victim of the world and, and everyone around you, but he is saying that you yield your entire life to Jesus. Deny yourself. Follow me is what Jesus says. This will be costly. He also says here that whoever saves their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will save it. A pastor named Sam Albury, he works for the Gospel Coalition, he makes the distinction here that he says he finds strangely comforting, which I actually agree with. He says that there's a point in your discipleship that it will feel like Jesus is killing you. He says here that, that following me will feel like you are losing your life. But in that, he also says that whoever loses their life for my sake and the gospel will save it. That the very act of yielding ourselves to Jesus is the means by which we receive and gain ourselves. The means by which we become who God wants us to be. There's a cost in striving to disciple someone. Like here in our lives, it may just take time later in our day when we just want to relax after work. Or it may take more effort to wake up at six before work to meet with someone. Or it may take more energy when you already feel like you have no more left to give. But in each of these, it is so worth it if we have our eyes fixed on eternity. If we have our eyes and our hearts choosing to view the end goal of seeing everyone grow in maturity in Christ. As followers of Jesus, our comforts are no longer our top priority. But man, how easy is it to allow them to be? Personally, I have thoughts like, ah, man, I can't meet with another person. Like, I need my eight hours of sleep. Or, man, it would be a lot of work going through another book with someone. Like, I already have a lot on my plate. Or, like, I barely know that person. Like, someone else can disciple them. Like, it doesn't have to be me. These are just the thoughts that, like, I have. And I can only imagine, like, the other thoughts in the room. The temptation that we find here is idolizing ease of life, idolizing comfort over obedience to God. As followers of Jesus, we should be fighting against this comfort, which so easily can be a crutch for us. Our culture loves comfort, loves ease of life. But Paul said he toiled and struggled. He fought to exhaustion as if he was training for a race. Our culture, in contrast to that, teaches us that, man, if we're uncomfortable, if we feel strained, then something's wrong in our life, and like we need to change. But if we function under this lie, then we will be leading half-hearted discipleship, or we won't even step into discipleship, because we convince ourselves that, man, we're excused, because this, this is too hard for us. If we're being honest with ourselves, would we say that we are toiling away we are struggling so that others will grow in maturity in Christ. Or would we say that we're just being comfortable? Thankfully, though, it's not ultimately up to us to just endure through this. But there's someone else's power at work. And that leads us into the last point, the power of discipleship. 
which we find finishing off verse 29. Paul said, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul says that even, through, even though he toiled and struggled, he was able to do this with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Praise God. Praise God that it's not up to us. Praise God that he will supply us with energy, that he will be working through us with his power. Yes, discipleship takes a lot of energy. And if it was all hinging on our own like personal energy tanks, then like nothing would happen. But it's not. And that's the encouraging part. The Lord gives us his energy. We have his energy to depend on even when we don't think we have anything else to give. No matter how experienced we are in discipleship, it is crucial that we are constantly, consistently coming to the Lord to ask for his energy, to ask for his power. Like, we will exert our own energy. But it's not ultimately our energy or our power that has the work to change someone's heart, to change someone's life. But it's only the power of God. We see this also in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, where it says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. We're called to be faithful and intentional with the time that the Lord has given us. But in that time, it is only God that has the power to actually change someone's heart. Or let's, let's look at Matthew 4, 18 and 19. This is when Jesus called his first disciples. So like background to that, like two men were just, they were casting a net into the sea. And now first off, like I don't know who a net is or what she deserved to be thrown into the sea, but, like, that's not the main point here. In this story, Jesus looked at them and he said, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. What Jesus didn't say was, Follow me, and you will learn to be fishers of men. He wasn't worried about their own abilities, he wasn't worried about their skills. He knew that he had the power, he had the power to work through his children. He knew that it wasn't their energy that would be used either, but the energy that is given by the Lord. It is by following Christ and following his example and by his power alone that we will grow in discipleship. Jesus tells us in the Great Commission as well, like we heard at the beginning in Matthew 28, 20. He says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, I can't tell you how much this specific verse, this specific line that Jesus has said has comforted me over this past year. As I reflect on hard times, trials, deaths, the promise that we have here from Jesus, that he will be with us always to the very end of the age, that's been like a warm hug for me, truly knowing that Christ is there for us, walking with us, providing us with energy, providing us with power. That is amazing. And Paul also reflects on this in 2 Corinthians, of, of this, the amazing truth that God uses weak humans to accomplish his great commission. 
In 2 Corinthians 4, 7, he says, But we hold this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power comes from God and not from us. The point being made here is that God has deliberately chosen something fragile and unimpressive. He's chosen us. Why would God keep this great treasure in such vulnerable containers? Paul says that God wants to show that the power of his glory is from him. He leaves no room to suggest that the power comes from Paul or or any other human being. The power of the gospel is so overwhelming that it is not limited by the quality of its container. God displays his limitless power and glory by distributing it through limited, common, normal human vessels. That's amazing. The temptation that we find here is to depend on ourselves and not on the Lord. You'll find that as we grow in discipleship, as we grow in the knowledge of God's word, we may become less aware of our need for the Lord in our lives. And we may begin to convince ourselves that we can do this on our own. But the truth is, is that we never start needing him any less. It's not our knowledge or our skill that makes disciples, but it's only the power of God working in us and working through us. And we need to constantly acknowledge this. Constantly acknowledge that before the Lord. We need to prayerfully depend on him and never be okay with trusting our own abilities. An easy way that I find to reveal if like I'm relying on myself and not on the Lord, is asking myself, like, man, did I spend any time in prayer over this? Am I praying before I take action, or am I just stepping into it? Am I submitting that to the Lord, or am I just taking that on my own shoulders? As disciples, we're called to simply help others follow Jesus better, to do spiritual good to one another. How are you going to do that? And the thing is, is that you can have these relationships anywhere. You can have them in your workplace. You can have them at school or as you play sports. Two of my pastors in Arkansas, they, they always talk about how like some of the most fruitful relationships that they've seen over the years is making friends with other parents as their kids play sports. But in all of these, intentionality has to be there. There's endless things that you can do to step into discipleship. Maybe two friends decide to to read a chapter from the Gospel of John, and then they discuss it over coffee or like a workout at the gym. Maybe two men, two dads, they, they read a chapter each week from a Christian book, and then they talk about it as they like walk through the neighborhood with their kids. Maybe two couples do a date night together once a month. And they talk about what the Bible says about marriage and how they're specifically and intentionally applying that. Maybe like a godly older woman invites a a young single lady over to her house every Tuesday and they pray together and they study like a missionary biography together. Or maybe you, you just get time weekly with a brother and you intentionally talk about how spiritual disciplines have been going for you 
what you've been learning and, and what you need help with. Regardless of the format, we need to be intentional with how we help others follow Christ. Intentionality is key. In all of this, we can do nothing apart from the sustaining and empowering grace of God. As we help others follow Christ, we're constantly made aware of our great need for God's grace. We sin, we fail, we struggle, and in all of those, God's grace abounds to his children. This is good news. It's only by his grace in faith that we are able to be a disciple of Christ. And it's only by a foundation of grace and faith that we're able to step into discipleship. Jesus is clear in the Great Commission of what we are called into. It is clear that it is Christ who we are to proclaim. It is clear that we need to teach and warn everyone with the purpose for all to grow in maturity in Christ. It's clear that this will be costly. And Jesus is clear that the power only comes from him. Savior Community Church, may we seek to faithfully follow Christ and help others do the same until we see his face. I'm going to close this out in prayer. Lord, we need your grace in this. We praise you that it is only by your grace and by your power that anyone's heart is changed. Thank you that it is not up to us, God. Lord, humble us. Remind us of your word. Teach us to be more like you. Lord, protect us from falling into these temptations and encourage us through your word to press on in faith. We love you, Lord. And we're so thankful to be a part of your family. We're thankful to be your children. And we pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen.